The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Morning. Escort, hooker, prostitute, whore, I don't mind what you call me. That's just semantics. There are as many different kinds of working girls as there are kinds of people, so you can't generalize. But I can tell you about me. I should say up front that I wasn't abused by a relative. I've got no children to support, and I've never been addicted to anything. Except for maybe the fourth season of The West Wing, but, you know. I'm very high class, which means I charge by the hour, and I charge a lot. So why do I do it? Well, I love sex, and I love money. And I know you don't believe I enjoy the sex, but I do. I'm fundamentally lazy. What I really like is being my own boss. Well, pretty much my own boss. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. Remember, you can always email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com or visit our website, uh, chrwradio.com or www.justrightmedia.org. Boy, do we have them all there for you. And you can get all the back back issues, (laughs) back episodes of the show. Today, we're going to be talking about a few interesting things, eh, Robert? Indeed. Um, legalizing prostitution, good or bad. We'll be talking about that in about a quarter hour or so. I we'll also want to talk about um, the big debate we're seeing between local cable TV and of co- or, uh, local TV programming and cable TV. They're having an interesting fight with all their ads on the air, and I've got some comments on that. And, of course, we're going to be talking about lights out at the end of the show, dark skies, and I think you've got a few things to say <laughs> about some of the things that have been going on at City Hall here in London lately to say nothing about around the rest of the world. But first, um, you know, we've been getting, we had a little flood of mail there a week or two ago uh, to the show. And I think people are enjoying the combo, us both being here right well, now. That's good. And I can tell because all the letters were addressed uh, Bob and Robert, so it must be, it must have been written since then. And we got a few here, and some have replied to uh, some of the issues that we discussed on previous shows. So we thought we'd go through some of these letters, see what we can get done in the first, say, 10 or 15 minutes or so. Uh, one of the first ones we got here, Robert, was from a li- listener, Marco. I think this is maybe the second time he's he's uh, written to the show where we actually covered it. And uh, he writes, he says, Hi, Bob and Robert. First off, I'd like to say that as a regular listener of Just Right, I'm very much interested to see how the new two-host format works out. It's interesting to see how you two complement each other so well. 
Well, what do you know? We complement each other. Um, the, no, question, we don't. <laughs> the question I have for both of you is in regards to an option that I feel may be worth exploring at all federal, provincial, and municipal elections. That option being a vote for none of the above, which would basically give people the power to still participate on election day, but their vote would be one of no confidence. I think with today's political landscape, where most parties sound quite similar, people who go to the polls and vote for the so-called lesser of two evils would not need to do that anymore. And those who don't bother going out to vote, perhaps due to a genuine dislike towards the system, can have an option. A none-of-the-above initiative doesn't even need advertising, though it certainly wouldn't hurt. With a record low voter turnout last October, it may be possible that people feel the system is ripe for a change, even though sometimes it may not seem like it when many things still cling to the free lunch policies, like Medicare. One drawback, however, at least in the short run, is it may take away the already normally small amounts of votes many independent and smaller parties get. However, none of the above... Should, should none of the above get more support or even win, perhaps this could increase the chances of smaller parties and or independents getting elected the next time round. And with all that being said, however, there's one thing I wonder about, and, is that, and that is if none of the above wins and an incumbent is pushed out and a re-election is called, then who would be in charge during the time of a re-election since nobody won the first time? And he says, thanks, <laughs> and that's his question. Now... Um, Marco, just to, first of all, what happens when one of the governments is pushed out? That happens at every election. Uh, during elections, there is no sitting government in terms of parties. It's literally, nobody has a seat in the House when, 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 when the election is officially called. Government goes on because it, it's run by the bureaucracy. But if I were to answer your, your questions uh, ver- as directly as I can, I'd point out maybe uh, four or five principles about voting that... that if you're in this business for a while, you just learn them. And, and, and if you ignore them, then you're at your own peril. And one of the things is, one of the first principles is that political voting is a process uh, explicitly designed to be against something, offering an option to the electorate to throw an existing group of elected representatives out. Uh, very few people vote um, you know, for something. And the second principle is that I think none of the above will never win, largely as a consequence of principle one. It's also an option that invites mandatory uh, mandatory voting, which is kind of undemocratic at its root, even though some so-called democratic countries are employing it. And, uh, you know, it really doesn't matter, this is my third point, it doesn't matter what percentage of eligible of the eligible electorate actually votes. As with polling, small samples generally match the large sample, and the infinite number of advocacy groups who are urging an increase in voting numbers, um, they're accomplishing nothing by their efforts. Getting elected uh, with, say, 55% of the vote is still a 55% support level, whether you're doing it with a thousand people or doing it with a million people, it's still 55%. And here's the most interesting point, and this is my fourth point. The, the fewer the number of voters, the more value your own vote has. In fact, a low voter turnout is usually a good sign that the government in power isn't terrible enough for the masses to revolt, eh, Robert? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Uh, and a high voter turnout is usually big trouble for the party in power. And that's why those advocating higher voter turnouts are invariably dissatisfied with the government in power. And then they mistakenly uh, reverse cause and effect, thinking that if you have an artificial or forced high voter turnout, it'll accomplish the same thing as a voluntary turnout when people come out to toss the government out. It just ain't so, and it never ever will be. It's just a fact. And 
just a, a final point, and for those who are thinking it, you know, forget about silly ideas like proportional representation. Uh, first past the post is the only way to decide a race. And you can tell that even in horse racing. Who would you decide if you were going <laughs> proportional <laughs> representation in a horse race, eh? There's no clear winners then. No, that's, and that's what they want, of course. So uh, that's for Marco. Now we've got a couple of letters. Actually, just, just a sec, yeah. Bob, on, on that issue, because I wrote a letter to the editor. One of the very first letters to the editor I ever wrote to the London Free Press was back in uh, November 17, 1988. Wow. I dug this out of my own archives where I actually agreed with Marco. Um, totally. And I asked for um, declining your ballot, and I asked people to go out there and decline your ballot if they didn't like any of the above. And um, I've totally changed my opinion on that for those reasons you've mentioned, but mostly uh, because uh, we need a clear winner. You need to, you need to have responsibility, and uh, you don't get it with proportional representation. You don't no. get it with uh, any sort of uh, mixed messages. You, you need a clear winner. You need responsibility in government. I agree. And, um, of course, um, you know, it's been tried before. I saw people try it before, and it just it isn't going to work. You know, we've had some personal experience in that regard. Burning ballots. Yes. <laughs> and, by the way, if you don't want, if you don't like any of the parties in power, just don't, don't vote. Stay home and watch, uh, you know, Desperate Housewives By the way, that, that still gives you the right to complain. A lot of people out there sure. are going to say that, oh, you don't have a right to complain if you don't vote. But I disagree entirely. It's You don't have to vote. It's your... V- Part of the, the right to vote is the right not to. And you're still exercising your right when you choose to stay home. In fact, I'll take, it, take that point one step further and say that when people say you don't have a right to vote and you voted, that's the person who doesn't have a right to vote cause they're, or to complain because they're the ones that put in the bad people in power, right? <laughs> exactly. That they're complaining about. So right. if anybody has a right to complain, it's the ones that didn't vote. Hey! <laughs> so, hope that cleared everything up for you, Marco. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one. We got two letters actually um, from someone who's been a guest on this show and will be likely in the near future again, and that's a fellow from Sweden who listens to this show, and that's uh, Paul Lambert, who was originally from London here, and um, he had a couple of interesting points, and we've got these both of these letters at slightly separate times, but uh, one's very short, and then Robert, I'll let you handle the longer one. Mm-hmm. But the first one, uh, he says, "Hello, Bob and Robert. Good to hear." both of you once more. He says, you know what? I was present at least at one of your discussions about determinism way back when I was in high school and you were based on Richmond Street. It was fascinating and I haven't forgotten. Wasn't that funny? Did you remember other people being there during our determinism Oh, we <laughs> discussed it so often, Bob, I'll tell you. Uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's all a blur. <laughs> and, uh, and he makes another interesting point here about another issue we discussed on a past show. He says, as for the extradition in Mark Emery's case, who, by the way, is sitting in a jail cell still in Van Vancouver awaiting um, his extradition to go through. He says, um, I can give you a parallel situation we have in Sweden. He says, right now a Swedish citizen who goes to Thailand and buys the services of an underage prostitute, which we'll be talking about later, that issue, uh, legal in Thailand, setting aside the moral issue for a moment, can be prosecuted when he gets home. I don't know where the line is drawn. I've done things that are legal in the U.S., like firing machine guns on a range, which is totally illegal in Sweden. Am I now liable for prosecution here? I look forward to more episodes. I've listened to all of them so far. Glad to hear Robert Vaughn once more after such a long period of time. That's great. Thanks, Paul. Um, Now, that's an interesting question you raise there. You know, it's like... uh, jurisdictions seem to be crossing lines Well, you know, we have global markets now. It's almost as if we're starting to get a global legal system. 
with no clear lines of responsibility or jurisdiction. And it's starting to get a little scary out there, especially in the case of Mark Emery. We see it close to home. Right. You know? And um, well, we'll see how that one's going to work out over the coming time. Now, Robert, I'll leave this next one to you here. And this one's also from Paul, where he actually has responded to our show two weeks ago and we were responding to another email that we received from a fellow named Stephen who was talking about his frustrations uh, uh, debating with socialists in general, and, and uh, Paul had some so, some great comments to to add to the debate, and I thought they were very worth hearing. So this is actually for um, for Stephen, our, our our original letter writer from a couple of right. weeks ago. Right. Uh, Paul says, Dear Bob and Robert, thanks for another great show, guys. Even after so many years, I always get something out of the exchanges between you two. Brings back memories. Like Stephen, I have been frustrated trying to get through to socialists. However, unlike Stephen, I've learned that it is a fool's errand and there is no point. Life's too short. What I do want to point out is that when you listen carefully to a socialist argument and try to break it down, it is striking just how subjective their position is, and more importantly, how they project their own subjectivism onto others. Take the first three of five points listed by Stephen. Granted, the last two were not subjective and perhaps worthy of some discussion. First point. What do you, and this is in quotes uh, from the socialist, what do you think government should provide, unquote? In another context, this may be a valid question, but out of the mouth of a socialist, it is a moral probe, i.e., are you moral and magnanimous enough to support government provision of anything? Point two from the socialist, why don't you go live in the U.S. if you like that system, unquote? Yes, Bob, you got it right on when you asked how one moving to another country will help the Canadian medical system. Well, it'll take some stress off it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It certainly won't fix the system, though. The faults in the Canadian medical system, or that of any other country, uh, country, or for that matter, whatever virtues may be found in any organizations, exist independently of anyone evaluating the rightness or wrongness of that system. As well, Stephen's explanation that studies showed government interference in the medical industry to cause problems was unanswered by those studies, by, quote, those studies were probably conducted by the insurance companies, unquote. Again, the results of those studies are either valid or invalid for reasons totally independent of the people looking. Otherwise, we could follow the socialist logic, namely, instead of allowing the socialist to project ulterior motives onto the insurance companies, Stephen should have asked, what were the socialists' ulterior motives for supporting socialized medicine? You know, that's a good question. There's another point in here that, that I've stressed before. You always hear that if we allowed private medicine, it would take away from the public system. Yes. And um, again, you know, he, he says here, he, he makes a point that, that the medical system exists independently of whatever other virtues are in other systems. And the reason they don't like private medicine right beside public medicine is because it makes it look so bad. It's not because it steals all the doctors away. The public system dies under its own weight, regardless of whether private is allowed or not. And that's something people haven't quite, you know... I think they're also forgetting the fact that socialized medicine here, at least in Ontario, because it's provincially uh, run... Only started when was that 1967? Around there, yeah. So we didn't have healthcare before then. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, to get back to Paul's letter, number three, nobody in Sweden or Britain complains. Besides this being a total falsehood, I can vouch for that firsthand, and a rather cowardly attempt at hearsay. Because of course he lives in Sweden. Yeah, he's calling from Sweden. Remember that. So yes, they do complain in Sweden. 
It's a cowardly attempt at hearsay, since there were likely no Britons or Swedes present to challenge the claim. The socialist, again, substitutes the subjective feelings of Britons and Swedes for the, uh, for the facts of the matter. The health system in these countries are failing independently of how many people under them will complain. As an aside... Heard I, that point made again. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah, yeah. As an aside, I find this argument to be rather dodgy. It suggests that the socialist would change his position if he could find some Swedes who complain <laughs> about the socialized medicine. I can help him find, that, find them in that regard. I know plenty. Perhaps it is more uh, a mere projection again when he claims, quote, you don't want to believe anything against what you argue, unquote. What I'm saying is that socialists only act on feelings and emotions divorced from the objective reality outside themselves. Therefore, they have a hard time understanding that some other people evaluate matters objectively. That is why I argue, for instance, that it is wrong to tax people's income. I only get to hear, you were selfish. If I argue that good manners have a practical function in keeping order in a free society, I only get to hear, you're old-fashioned. If I argue that homosexual behavior among men carries with it serious health, health risks, I only get to hear, you're a narrow-minded bigot. So I have found a perfect answer to give, which so far has succeeded in shutting such people up every single time. The answer is simply, it's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> My point is this. If Stephen really feels he needs to respond to socialists, it's enough to keep them on topic by not letting them drift into personal challenges. It is natural to want to defend oneself and to look moral in the eyes of others. However, if you want to address the factual reality of a given topic, then remember that what other people think of you is none of your business and remove yourself personally from the debate and take on the argument in a way the left never will, objectively. And that's what object objectivity is, is to remove yourself from mm -hmm. the debate itself. So that Not that you don't have a self-interest in it, necessarily. You'll find but, this all the time, Bob. Yeah. I know you have, I have. People mm -hmm. just name-calling and thinking they're winning the argument by calling sure. in names. Uh, by the way, there was one point that Stephen, um, when we dealt with his concerns two weeks ago, that I didn't get to because we ran out of time at the end of the show there. And he brought up a, a, one of the questions he got asked was how um, the World Health Organization shows that prenatal death is lowest in, in the socialized healthcare mm -hmm. countries. And life expectancy is higher, higher there, too. I seriously doubt even that that is true, to be honest with you, with you because um, I did a, a show a few weeks back where I actually looked at some of those comparisons, and guess what I found then? And, you know, it's certainly not true when you compare, for example, Canada with the United States, although it's dubious to say which of those countries is more or less socialist with health care. <laughs> Canadians think the U.S. got a completely free health care system, i.e. free market, whereas we got a free one, no free market. <laughs> and... Um, but I did go into a lot of detail on that recent broadcast, and I, and I remember on that show that we, it was stated even uninsured poor people in the U.S. fared better than government-insured poor people in Canada in terms of life expectancy and overall health, etc. And uh, I think the great irony, you can just put on a footnote to that, is that you know, those areas of the United States that fare the poorest in prenatal deaths and life expectancy happen to be the most welfare-oriented states and cities where you see a lot of that kind of thing going on. So uh, that's a bit of our mail that we got this week, and we want to thank you for uh, sending that mail to us. Remember, if you want, want us to answer some of your questions and deal with some of your concerns, suggest topics to us. Again, that email is just right, chrw at gmail.com. We're going to take a quick break right now and get back to uh, maybe not so sexy issue but legalizing prostitution which has been in the news of late.
How many people have immigrant parents? But a round of applause. Let me hear you. The one thing, one thing about immigrant parents, they're scared at the border. I don't know why. I bring my dad there every Sunday. Just to see him. Uh, we'll like, oh my God, son, is that the border? Yes, dad, hide me. We even freak out even more when the guy in customs comes up to us. Because I state your name, Ron Jossel, 26 years old, Canadian citizen. My brother's like, Rich Jossel, 28 years old, Canadian citizen. What about you, old man? No, 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 I don't sell drugs. <laughs> Excuse me, no cocaine in the car. <laughs> Step away from the vehicle. My mom's even worse. Oh, I don't even know him. <laughs> He's crazy. He's a criminal. Shoot him now. Go ahead, kill him. ideas on how to control porn. The London presentations reflected a wide range of views. A London businessman offered $500 to anyone who could show him a store selling child porn. Robert Metz of the London Freedom Party told the committee everyone has the right to degrade themselves. He sees censorship as the use of force. We have a criminal code whose obscenity provisions literally leave anyone charged under them without a legal leg to stand on. There's no possible objective defense in a court of subjectivity where the opinion of a judge is deemed absolute and even where that opinion can be overturned at a later date. Law students from the University of Western Ontario presented a study on prostitution. It included a mathematical formula suggesting that increased prices for prostitution would reduce the number of customers. The students also suggested that laws against prostitutes should be repealed in favor of stronger laws against the customers and pimps a point that their professor picked up on in her brief. It seems to me that the act of selling sexual services is qualitatively different from the act of purchasing and from the acts of financial profiteers who are raking profits off other people's work. The latter two groups, customers and profiteers, have choices which are unthinkable, in fact unimaginable to most prostitutes. Ms. Backhouse also suggested that prostitutes be recruited as police informers to turn in potential clients. The London Status of Women Action Group brought bondage magazines to the committee session. They say the material has to be stopped at the border or screened before it hits the shelves. No police force with four police officials on vice, and, and this is not the only area vice deals with, obviously, can deal with that material. In London, Steve Parr... That was a clip from CKCO News, uh, CKCO TV News. Uh, the one thing I haven't mentioned is what year that clip aired, and that was in 1984. Can you believe it? I can't believe you keep records that far back. Uh, well, everything I've ever done politically, we kept records of. And that was a Fraser Committee on Pornography and Prostitution held way back when. Um, and what's interesting is the same committee, the same um, results have been coming back into the news because a lot of people are recommending they should follow what, what that committee recommended way back in 1984. Now, there has been a push to legalize prostitution. Um, Seamus O'Regan of CTV News um, recently, in the last couple of weeks, spoke with um, one of the key spokes 
persons for the for the prostitutes, and that's Terry Lynn Bedford on CTV News. And and the quote I got from her was this: "It is my opinion that all adult entertainment should be licensed, and if legal, should be conducted on private property, where security can be present, and the women would not have to fear the police." <laughs> there is an interesting quote for you. End quote. So I was wondering, what do the police have to say on this? Well, sure enough, um, I was listening to another radio station. You don't get some of this stuff in the newspapers, unfortunately. And uh, they're over at CJBK. Sean Array was interviewing um, Deputy Police Chief Brad Duncan here, here in the city. And she basically asked him, will legalizing prostitution solve the problem? And here's what he had to say. And I'm quoting him here. It's a very complicated issue, he says. The difficulty is that with many of our experiences here in London with respect to sex trade workers, they deal with women who are exploited at a number of levels and all of whom, all, get that, of whom are suffering from addictions. Obviously, Terry Lynn Bedford is speaking from a business perspective, says says, uh, Police Chief Duncan, Deputy Police Chief. And if someone decides to sell themselves for money in a business enterprise, it's very different from someone who is exploited and brought into the sex trade because there are no other options for them. When we speak to these women, all of them are ashamed of what they're doing, are disgusted with the fact they have to engage in this kind of activity, and would want nothing better than to get out of this particular lifestyle. There are assumptions that when we look to creating body houses or licensed establishments, that women involved in the sex trade would all migrate to these establishments. While many of the individuals we deal with are homeless, do not have the ability to engage in that kind of activity, and so they would still fall outside the body house mandate. So we would still be dealing with that. I also want to emphasize the issue around safety, he says. In our experience, these women are victims. And for a number of reasons, it could be socioeconomic, it could be drug addictions, to find themselves forced into this lifestyle and not by choice. A body house environment is not going to solve the issue. It's much more complicated than that. And then he talks about uh, ex- the personal experience that some of their officers have had with women's advocacy groups in London, and that they would take an opposing view to, uh, of course, legalizing prostitution in terms of, quote, degradation that occurs with the sex trade, the psychological trauma that occurs. So when we talk about decriminalization and legalization of the sex trade, one could certainly argue that decriminalization for women who are truly victims in this case would be appropriate. However, to legalize it with regard to the men who engage in this activity, it's the exploitation issue that is of concern so it's very complicated actually it's not very complicated at all what he's saying there he's saying women are victims men are perpetrators end of story okay and he says these women are not empowered they are victims they engage in this kind of activity because there's no other choice for them but to engage in prostitution in order to either support their addictions or provide sustenance on a day-to-day basis And then he says, uh, this is not a quote, he says, in London that we're talking about 200 women who've been dealt with under the city's excessive risk program, and they can claim they've saved about a dozen of these women so far through the police, quote, intervention. And he talked about protecting these women from the risk of violence and how uh, we know from other communities how some have fallen victim to homicide. You know, can I interrupt for a second, Bob? Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask the obvious question here. Uh If... um, the was it deputy police chief duncan yes if he actually thinks these women are victims why are the women subject to arrest and imprisonment for up two years for being victims well because they're helping them (laughs) (laughs) it actually you know it actually gets a bit worse than that but it's the whole implication of what this means um but that's a good question 
and he says, and then he, then he talks about um, uh, um, you know, protecting people. And he says, basically, his argument is that that because not everyone would move into si- in, into a legal brothel, that no one should be allowed to. Okay, that's the argument. And uh, while simultaneously citing the negative impacts on neighborhoods that this kind of street trade has. And he says, you're still left dealing, quote, with the visible sex trade on the streets. And this is interesting. He says, of course, there's a whole industry as well, because that's what sex trade becomes. We then get into the issue of trafficking women from other countries to different countries. My question, of course, is how are they brought to those countries? By your own volition, etc. So it's a very complicated issue. It's not as clear-cut as one would think from some of the comments we've heard in the media of late, he says. And so he was asked, how do you stamp out prostitution when there's a supply and demand? And here's an interesting distinction. He says, when you look at the argument between decriminalization and legalization, decriminalization looks at the women as victims, and as a result of being victims, they really have no choice. So, he said, so you label them a victim, and then when they're a victim, then, then you know they're not human anymore because they don't have choices. Okay, That's basically what he's saying. And uh, their only choice is to ga- engage in this activity. So by decriminalize it, there are other methodologies we can use to move them out of the lifestyle, which doesn't sound, I guess if they figure they can save 12 out of 200, that's good. And he says, however, if you legalize it, then we're talking mainly about the Johns, who are men. They're then in a situation of empowerment in terms of engaging women and in creating further abuse. And he refers, interestingly enough, to a Swedish model, again, that demonstrates uh, that one engages in prostitution, not out of choice. And he says, he thinks that when we hear from those who believe they have a right to engage in the selling of sex for money, it's really, quite frankly, a business approach. Someone's making a conscious decision. And I emphasize decision to engage in that kind of activity. What about all the other women who have no choice? There's no ability to decide whether to do it or not. Circumstances dictate that's the only option they believe they have. And this message just kept getting repeated over and over and over again. He again referred to sexual assaults and violence that the police department has encountered dealing with these women. The women in the sex trade have no choice. The men in the sex trade have a choice because they can choose to buy the service or not. And uh, then he concludes it's wrong what's been happening to our young women as a result of their addictive personalities. Now, you know, aren't, isn't drug use illegal to begin with? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And if these people are all addicted and, they're, and, the, and the people are having the problem with is all due to drugs, not to prostitution from anything I've heard from anything he said, uh, why aren't they arresting them for their drug abuse and getting them off the drugs and forget about the whole prostitution deal? But they don't do that because they're victims. That's right. Right? And, and it seems to me that telling anyone that they are a victim, that they're incapable of choice repeatedly, and as a matter of doctrinaire belief, is, that's an obscenity. I, I, I just think it is. It's the ultimate indignity. It means that the people you're talking about are not human beings. You know, they're not distinct in any way from trees, rocks, or animals. They just do what... They haven't got any choices. They're acted upon, which is why, in fact, they call a lot of people in the industry sex objects. An object is something that is acted upon. And, uh, and, and, you know, talk about doing psychological damage to tell them that they are victims and can't do anything. seems to me if the idea is to get them out of the business, the first thing you say is the opposite of that, wouldn't you? You, you are empowered. You can do it, you yeah. know? That's how business people promote uh, success. And what I like find that. interesting, Bob, is that twice now during this discussion, once during the clip, um, a student, I think, said something about 
the profiteers are the problem. Yes. Making of profits, and even uh, what you just quoted there from the police officer. The problem seems to be not the women, but people making a dollar off of it, the business of it, the profits of it. As if profits, by the way, should be a dirty word, well, which of course it's not. And of course it's, it's money that's the crime here, it's not the sex. You can go out and have as much sex with as many people as you want, male or female. No one's going to arrest you, but if you take money for it, then you're in trouble. Even though that transaction is technically legal in the country. Actually, I think you can take money for it, but you're not allowed to ask, and they're not allowed to... Right. <laughs> it's solicitation. It. That's yeah. exactly right. And Oh, uh, by the way, you, you can't take the money, because to take the money, you have to be in a place. And all places for prostitution are outlawed, public and private. And yet because if you do it in private, it's now a body house. <laughs> in the fast, and yet the government accepts money from prostitutes in their income tax returns. <laughs> but they did that for Mark Emery when he was selling That's seeds right. and drugs, too, and they, yeah. they took the taxes. But it's interesting, you know, we do live in a victim culture as Canadian historian Joe Armstrong repeatedly demonstrated in his book, Farewell to Peaceful Kingdom. The, the one thing that you never hear come up, it's, you know, you all, it's always in any sort of commercial sex. It's always the male-female issue. It's a, it becomes a gender issue. And I always found it interesting, how come they never talk about uh, lesbians or homosexuals or bisexuals in terms of uh, any financial transactions that may go on in those groups. It just never comes up. It's always uh, the male-female. And, of course, uh, implicit in this is that there is no other kind of prostitution besides the street kind, which is not true. That's the tip of the... Sm- the smallest tip of the iceberg. Uh, prostitution goes on mostly in private homes and not even in body houses, really. So uh, that's about anything else to add on that subject before we move on, Robert? I think you covered it pretty well there, Bob. Okay, well, on the other side of these breaks, uh, we're going to come back to a very interesting issue that's coming up lately, and that's this battle that's going on on the air between cable TV and local TV programming. And we'll talk about that when we return after these messages. Hello. I'm Sister Mary Immaculate. People say to me, where does the Bible stand on homosexuality? Three times in the Bible, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. First, cable invented negative option billing. They charge you for channels you didn't ask for unless you objected. Now, they want to charge you twice. Cable companies spend millions on American news services like CNN. But not one cent of your cable fee goes to pay for Canadian news made by local Canadian channels. You pay for local channels, but cable companies pocket all that money, while local Canadian channels are going broke. If they have to pay local television, Cable says they'll just pass the cost right on to you. You'll pay twice. Cable needs to pay their fair share. Cable companies need to step up and pay for local Canadian TV. Otherwise, it may soon be a thing of the past. Visit localtvmatters.ca. Sir, sir, how do you feel about the big TV networks like CTV and Global insisting that the CRTC impose a TV tax on us all of up to $10 a month to pay for local TV? Come on, are you kidding me? $10? Oh, no way. Doesn't make any sense. They're already getting support, right? Yeah. How do you feel about them wanting more? Uh, It's pretty selfish and kind of sneaky. I think it's disgusting. I don't think so. Come on, Canada. Enough is enough. Go to stopthetvtax.ca and have your say. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We've got another 20 or so minutes to be with you until the top of the hour. 
What you just heard was a couple of uh, samples of the advertising that you've heard on channels. I think I got some of that off the A channel, some off Global. I've collected a few more since then, Robert, and they just get worse as they go along. Neither side is dealing with the issue. Um, each side is just hurling accusations, emotional things, and nothing to do with the facts. I, 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 or very peripherally, let Going us say. Going back to Paul, Paul's letter. <laughs> yes. And it brought to mind... Actually, I, this is going to end up on a good news story, believe it or not. But to begin with, this is a perfect example of how self-interest gets a really bad name whenever you have two ostensibly private groups at battle each, with each other, each appealing to the public with totally irrelevant and misleading advertising campaigns because of being regulated by the government. They're, they're all fighting over that fixed piece of pie, or fixed pie, you know, because that's what happens whenever government freezes anything. So, you know, it's a feature of a mixed economy that pits groups against each other in the political sense. Uh, but all the bad stuff rubs off on the private interest. The government seems to, oh, we'll, we'll solve the problem for you, <laughs> you know. The cause, of course, is the fact that the broadcast media in this country is restricted, controlled, and regulated, thus placing the entire industry in a, let us say, non-capitalist uh, economic arrangement, which is either socialist or fascist, which means state-run or state-controlled or both, rather than a capitalist system, which means a complete separation of state and economics. And that's the kind of environment you want to go uh, with, in which you know each interest is given, uh, you know, they can dispute or disagree, and then they're free to go their own way if they don't agree. And that means freedom of association. They don't have any of these things. No one, no one has any freedom under the interventionist and political rules of the CRTC. And so when you don't have freedom, you tend to behave like an animal trapped in a cage. And uh, that's how people get their sense of the behavior of business and stuff like that, you know, when they can't do what they need to do to respond to consumers. And the two commercial ads we just heard, um, you know, from each side of the issue there, by, by the way, one called Local TV Matters, the other side Stop the TV Tax. I think they're shameful examples of an intellectually dishonest debate, and there's just not much going on in terms of the facts you'll get there. But they will appeal to emotion. I, of course, I'm on cable. I don't want to have to pay more for cable because I'm already getting a lot of crap with my cable bill as it is. And yet, because of the system they're forced to be in, they're similarly uh, forced to protect their interests by fighting for an increased share of a fixed and shrinking pie. And that is otherwise known as rationing. It doesn't matter whether they're talking about rationing revenues, whether they're rationing licensing, government subsidies, the airwaves, they ration. That's what the government's doing. Now, having said all that, because I've dealt with this issue um, quite in detail in the past, Robert, uh, going back quite a ways. I think you probably are aware of it. Mm -hmm. uh, something happened this week again on another radio station, and I happened to hear, and I've talked to him before, and that's Don Mumford on the Steve Garrison show, I think it was this past Monday or so, talking about the issue. And he said something that I just got to give two thumbs up for and say Don Mumford gets an A for a channel on his personal opinion on the whole issue. Um, you know, he was on the show, and he, and he mentioned how it was about money, and he says uh, the reason we've been seeing TV networks go into bankruptcy protection, like Can West and Global TV, is because, of course, they have a lack of revenues. The problem, he points out, is not with local advertising, which is interesting, but with national advertisers. And he emphasizes, and I have no reason not to believe him, he says, our audiences are as strong as they've ever been, we just can't make enough money to make it all work. 
Quite simply, what we're saying is that the old model that the CRTC invented 50 years ago that was based entirely on us making all our money through advertising doesn't work anymore. We've always allowed the cable companies to take our signals and resell them to subscribers, to subscribers for free. We're saying the old system doesn't work. Time to move to a new age. Time for cable and satellite to start paying us for what they use. Now, I've got to admit, up to there, I wasn't too sure whether I was on side or not, because I'm still, you know, hearing that. And then um, he was asked the, the million-dollar question, and that was that, you know, cable companies have suggested dropping on-air broadcast TV signals altogether, take a channel right off of cable, take it off the satellite feeds. And, and Don Mumford was asked, how would that affect you? You want to hear his answer? And I'm quoting here. This is just amazing. He says, quote, you know what? I would agree with that. If they would sit down and agree to that proposal, we'd be on side with it. Then he went on and he referred to the history of both Bell and Shaw Cable Services, who originally operated without the local Channel 10 signal, but found that many customers wouldn't buy the cable without the local signal put on the cable (laughs) system, right? And I remember that period. When the cable companies added their signals, he said their, their sales went up, okay? Now, of course, at that time, they were still making all their money from advertising. For them, that was a boon, too, because they got a wider audience. But then in, in response to this, he continues, he says, quote, We're prepared to stand on our laurels. You know what, guys? If you don't want to carry us, I think it's going to hurt your business. But if you don't want to carry us, don't carry us. And I'll even go one step further, he says. What we're proposing, and what the CRTC has been proposing recently, not not a while ago, is that this whole concept of forcing consumers to buy packages of TV stations is really out of step. And it's really unfair to the consumer. No kidding. Yeah. Most people watch about 10 to 15 stations on their service. That would fit me out of the many I get. But in fact, you have to pay for anywhere from 100 to 150, up to 300, depending on what package you want to buy. What we're proposing is, let's put all of us on the same tier. If the consumer wants us, they'll buy us. If they don't want us, they won't buy us. So it's conceivable, depending upon the individual consumer, that the cable and satellite companies would start paying us a subscription fee, and they would pass that on to consumers. But at the end of the day, when you only had to pay for 10 stations or 15 stations, instead of the 150 you're paying now, your cable bill would actually go down can't believe it. That's what I've been saying for years. He says, I think the CRTC is recognizing the system is broken, not only from our revenue perspective, but also broken from a consumer perspective as well. And maybe we need to blow the whole system up, strip it right back down to a free market system. Let the consumer pick and pay for what they want to use. I'm convinced, based on our long history in the community, that we'll do just fine. Way to go. Is that nice or what? We'd, how often do we actually compliment people on a show <laughs> like this? So, Don Mumford, you got, you got A's, double A's on that A-channel uh, situation there. By the way, he did mention that the next CRTC hearings for the public are November 16th, December 7th. Public deadline is November 2nd to get anything in on that. So, uh, just shocking to hear. And uh, just before we switch now, you know, speaking of television, I'm just going to take this uh, quick tangent, you know, um, to recommend a show I've already recommended before, and I know it, uh, it's on—it's actually on Global Friday nights. And um, I've continued to be fascinated by Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. Have you been watching that at oh, all? Oh, I've Robert? seen every episode, Bob. Mind you, I don't have cable or satellite. 
<laughs> Ooh, I'm not going to ask you where you get them from then. But that's uh, another issue. Yeah, on television, where, where where I get them from, they're on the accursed Friday night slot, and the show was renewed for a second season, which is amazing. And it's quite an intense and engaging television experience. I got to tell you, don't even try to figure out what's going on on the screen if you haven't seen the show from the beginning, because it's not your usual type of uh, programming. And even if you have watched the show from the outset, I'm still not still not too sure the viewers have actually been led in on the ultimate prevents precipitating all the consequences that occur in the show. And uh, as I mentioned once before, this story and theme line is a very cerebral experience, uh, definitely in the sci-fi category, wouldn't you say? Well, definitely. Even, even though they don't yeah. do outer space stuff or anything like that. And forces, I think, the viewing mind to constantly assess and reassess what you're watching. I, my, I just feel like, you know, the brain is working constantly on that show. And I think for that reason, it's a little bit of a tiring experience, and I find that the relationships playing out in the screen are very rarely what they first appear to be. You know, it's that kind of a show. So here's a, a quick scene to give you some idea of what the show is about. Um, this is from the very first episode of Dollhouse, and it does set the stage of what the show is. And when we come back after, Robert will be talking about... Uh, oh, dark skies, dark, dark skies. ideas. Oh, cool. <laughs> okay, we'll be back right after this break. Nothing is what it appears to be. It seems pretty clear to me, because you're only seeing part of it. I'm talking about a clean slate. You ever try and clean an actual slate? You always see what was on it before. Are you volunteer? I don't have a choice, do I? I didn't get this far. Caroline, actions have consequences. Oh, God, you're loving this, aren't you? I'm sorry you don't understand what I'm offering here. But what we do helps people. If you become a part of that, it can help you. Right. You're just looking out for me. Perhaps better than you have. We can take care of this mess. After your five-year term, you will be free to... I don't to deserve this. I was just trying to make a difference. Trying to take my place in the world. You know, like she always said. And now I'm... Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right with Robert Metz and Robert Vaughn here on CHRW Radio 94.9 FM. And uh, 
just to end off the hour today, I'm going to be talking about something that was in the news this week. Uh, Bob, you probably heard about it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Councillor Judy Bryant suggested that we shut off all of the lights in the city, I assume these street lights, as a way to uh, green the planet, save money, and make sure that the trees and the birds get their rest. And I'm not joking. Just well, have to look she tried to tone it down a little later. A little later yeah. on the radio, yeah. she sort of backpedaled a bit. Well, I'm not talking about turning them off completely, even though that's exactly what she said in the London Free Press, if, if, the, London, if, if the London Free Press is to believe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we won't go there. You're right going now. with that, are you? All right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Bob, over the last while, you've dealt with a lot of issues. Something like this. You've talked about overregulation, banning things outright. Um, getting rid of technologies, things of that nature, and anti-idling bylaws, smoking bylaws, cell phone regulation, you name it. And this particular suggestion by this councillor, I think it's just got, it can't go unchecked. It can't go, when I read about that in the paper, I almost choked on my shreddies in the morning out of laughter. It's just (laughs) unbelievable. But it really got me to thinking that all over, the overregulation, the banning, the health scares have something in common. And what they have in common is one thing, an emotion. Hatred. It's absolute hatred. You know, about 50 years ago, Ayn Rand identified exactly what motivates these people. She called it hatred of the good for being the good. I remember reading about that and always having difficulty with it at first, but I think I understand it today. Yeah. Oh, I've... I've it's something that's stuck in my mind for a long time, mm. and it, it, it's only when you're being pummeled by such lunatic ideas as this does it come back to you and say, this is exactly what this is. It's hatred of the good for being the good. And I'd like to quote some of Rand, and and you tell me, Bob, if what I'm about to say makes you think of certain city councillors okay. or MPs, <laughs> MPPs, or even some university professors. This is from an article called The Age of Envy and Return of the Primitive, the Anti-Industrial Revolution by Ayn Rand. Quote, Today we live in an age of envy. Envy is not the emotion I have in mind, but it's the clearest manifestation of an emotion that has remained nameless. It is the only element of a complex emotional sum that men have permitted themselves to identify. Envy is regarded by most people as a petty, superficial emotion, and therefore it serves as a semi-human cover for so inhuman an emotion that those who feel it seldom dare to admit it even to themselves. That emotion is hatred of the good for being the good. This hatred is not resentment against some prescribed view of the good with which one, one does not agree. Hatred of the good for being the good means hatred of that which one regards as good by one's own conscious or subconscious judgment. It means hatred of a person for possessing a value or virtues one regards as desirable. If a child wants to get good grades in school but is unable or unwilling to achieve them and begins to hate the children who do, that is hatred of the good. If a man regards intelligence as a value, but is troubled by self-doubt and begins to hate the men he judges to be intelligent, that is hatred of the good. Here's another quote from the same article. Quote, Consider the full meaning of this attitude. Values are that which one acts to gain and or keep. Values are a necessity of man's survival and wider, of any living organism's survival. Life is a process of self-sustaining and self-generating action, and the successful purpose or pursuit of values is a precondition of remaining alive. 
Since nature does not provide man with an automatic knowledge of the code of values he requires, there are differences in the codes which men accept and the goals they pursue. But consider the abstraction value. Apart from the particular content of any given code, and ask yourself, what is the nature of a creature in which the sight of a value arouses hatred and the desire to destroy? In the most profound sense of the term, such a Only creature... Only a human being would be capable of it. Oh, yeah. In, in, in that sense. And in this case, a city councillor. <laughs> such a creature is not a killer, not a physical killer, but a metaphysical one. It's not an enemy of your values, but of all values. I imagine there got to be some people asking, what do you think that, that uh, she hates so much in terms of... Well, I'll get to that, okay. because there is a conclusion <laughs> to this. Got, okay. <laughs> it's an enemy of anything that enables men to survive. It is an enemy of life as such, and of everything leaving, living. Sounds rather drastic, but mm -hmm. I believe this. Yeah. It's just, the, the turning off the lights thing is a just one symptom of the whole the give you an example thing. too you hear a lot of people always criticize the US because it's free and yet you know they they appreciate freedom it's and a yet, value to them right and mm -hmm. yet they will you know criticize the US for its freedom not for its socialism and all its bad stuff right. they'll praise that thing. that's a perfect example <laughs> that segues right into this yeah. quote the last quote I have and it's from Galt's speech and mm -hmm. Atlas Shrugged quote they do not want to own your fortune they want you to lose it mm -hmm. They do not want to succeed, they want you to fail. They do not want to live, they want you to die. They desire nothing, they hate existence, and they keep running, each trying not to learn that the object of the hatred is himself. That's where I think I was going with this, Bob. That's the sum of it all, is that they hate themselves, they're projecting it onto everybody else. You know, ma man's means of survival is an unfettered mind in a, working in a free society. He creates a light bulb, someone tells him to turn it off. He creates an item of convenience. Someone tells him that these items of convenience are destroying the insects and the rocks and the trees. He creates luxury and then is made to feel guilty about it because it goes beyond mere survival. Name something, Bob, and you'll always find something, someone like a politician or a pseudo-intellectual who'll try to make you feel guilty about using it. Your clothes, made with slave labor in China. Your bottle of water, filling up our landfills. Your cell phone gives your brain tumors. Your car pollutes the air. Your house is not energy efficient enough. Your food makes you fat or gives you cancer. Your entertainment promotes violence. The list is endless. You name it and they'll find a reason to put it down. You value it and they will hate it. We have on London City's Council and Queen's Park and in Ottawa a great tribe of people, Bob, who hate technology, convenience, luxury, survival itself. The reason is that these is that they hate these things because they just hate themselves. That's a that's a big stretch for a lot of people to accept to see it the, to see the leap. And I know what you're talking about, and, and I understand in the sense of um, how people are. It's part of egalitarianism because you can't raise the lower levels. You can always bring the upper levels down. You can you can destroy, but you can't create. That's what these people are destroyers. A and you will always hear them referring to necessity as being the only justification that you can do anything, right? They take the fun out of life, Bob. Uh, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. And it's, isn't it interesting, um, I was listening to uh, Judy on the radio and she was uh, saying how terrible it is that when you look down on Earth from space, <sighs> yes. that you can see all these lights 
all over the planet. She says, we're decorated like a Christmas tree, she says, and there's way too many lights, which may be a point. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't some places you can cut down on lighting, but still talk about opposite to what you said. Was that last week Just or the last week Just last week with Kim here, yes, yeah. Yes, and you were talking about what a great thing it was When to I see, see the lights of, of Earth from space, I see wonder. I mean, my God, Bob, how could we have tamed this planet in such a short time and now we, we can go around and, and see it from space that this is lit up? I think that's fantastic. I do too, and you know, we, we can yell about technology and, and governments are doing everything, you know, trying to get rid of technology in order to actually affect our behavior and then they attack objects instead of behavior, which, again, another trend. But Robert, look at that clock. We're right out of time, aren't Where's we? Where's the time fly? And I can tell by Bronwyn's looking there, we got to get going. So, everybody, we're out of here for this week and we'll be back with a very different show next week. And we hope you'll join us on our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do be right, act right, and be right here next week. See ya. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Party and drink Oh, I love, I love Canadian cigarette packs I like Crayola boxes. Look at this, man. Oh, who smoked my burnt sienna? We're sharpening it for you, man. The players are good. They got the calendar for the year. That's what you need with cigarettes, folks. Well, I'll get the tumor on my lung by January 9th. I better circle that day. Turn it to cancer by February. I'll be dead then, thanks. New Jewish mother cigarettes. Warning. Go ahead. Smoke. Ruin your health. Break my heart. See you back there. You're probably sitting in the house all day. Hey, you're going to see the Jews here. Oh, the Jew jokes. The Jewish Antichrist. 666. But for you, 495. All right, yeah.